All right, we mentioned on, on last week's program that we wanted to talk a little bit about the passing of a giant in journalism, Jack Anderson, uh, who, uh, who passed away, I believe, on the 18th of December. And to help us look at this giant of uh, muckraking journalism is someone who uh, happened to have had lunch with Mr. Anderson many years ago. Returning to the program to talk about uh, Jack Anderson is Jane Rusconi, an actress, screenwriter, and uh, researcher uh, in Hollywood. Welcome back, Jane. Hi, how are you? We're, we're well. We should probably uh, reiterate for people that uh, don't remember your last appearance on our program that uh, you did some fine work in the early 90s for Oliver Stone for the production of JFK, which is why it is a fine movie, a lot of us think. And um, that's how I ran into you, and we talked about a little bit about that movie a couple years ago. And I, and I believe that it was your work for uh, Oliver Stone that brought you to the attention of Jack Anderson. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I um, I knew um, his uh, television producer. He had done some TV projects, um, and I knew his producer. And they were in town uh, for some meetings, and uh, I got together with them and Jack for lunch. And uh, this was yeah, probably early '90s. Didn't really know what to expect because. You know, his column was everywhere uh, for most of my life. The pe- people don't, re- don't realize how huge Jack Anderson was. It's surprising to me that it wasn't more made of his passing, but he was in like 40 million, he had 40 million readers at his peak. Yeah, and, and, also, and it, he was kind of a thorn in the side of, of the newspapers because I think they finally put his column on like the comics page. I remember seeing it there. Right. But people were reading it anyway. Yeah. So um, meeting him was quite surprising because he was a very... Um, Gracious, nice, friendly, unassuming. You would never pick him out of a police lineup as Jack Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't seem like a muckraker. He was a nice guy. He was very old style. He didn't have that thing that so many journalists have, whether it's um, Bob Woodward. Yeah. Bob Woodward is what they that, that thing of cozying up to their sources in an attempt to be one of them. Yes. <laughs> Jack Anderson, he had the people who worked for him, he had his sources. And he knew who he was, and he never got that confused, you know, which gave him a little different thing. He wanted to be Jack Anderson, the populist reporter. He didn't want to be the same sort of establishment member that so many reporters seem to aspire uh, to be. Murray Wass writing, I guess, in the Village Voice, said, uh, comparing him to Woodward, Judith Miller, Robert Novak, said that uh, Jack Anderson always understood it was his role to be an outsider. There was one exception to that, and I think that was... Um, it was something that he talked about was the one big mistake he thought he made was when he uh, he had the Iran-Contra story early, and because he had gotten quite close to Ronald Reagan, he um, decided to either wait on the story or just kill it entirely. And wow. That was the one thing he said he regretted. He just said it was a mistake. He shouldn't have done that. And he said it came from getting too close to, to Reagan. I did not know that. Yeah. Quite interesting. It's nice to see someone admit that they made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, what what a concept. Yeah, I mean, maybe Judith Miller can read up on Jack Anderson. <laughs> when you sat out with him, was he curious about uh, what Oliver Stone was up to with the movie? Uh, when I saw it after the movie came out, yeah. we talked about that, and we talked about Watergate, and we talked about you know the sort of corruption of the media, the the people forget their place, and 
um, get confused and get caught up in the corruption of, of uh, I guess, Washington and politics and celebrity and all that. You know, it's just a sort of commitment to remembering who who you're really working for, which in this case was himself. You know, it was, it was this idea that, you know, a reporter could make a difference, that you had to report on corruption, that there were things that were wrong and, and it was your responsibility to say them. Uh, we talked quite a bit about that. And he had done some crazy things, like he had infiltrated a polygamous sect when he first worked um, for one of the Mormon papers in Utah. Did you know about this? I did not know about this. He started out, I mean, like, first of all, you know, he was a very devout Mormon. Yes. And uh, I think he, I think he grew up in Utah. And when he started out, he was either working for Deseret or one of the papers in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And he actually infiltrated polygamous, fundamental Mormon sects to expose them. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty cool. <laughs> oh, he he must have been a teenager. Uh, you know, probably in his early twenties. I'll be darned. And uh, you know, that's a pretty brave thing to do. You know, to to be a devout Mormon. And then go after aspects of the church like that because polygamy is not something that the Mormon Church wants to deal with. You know, they, they wish it didn't exist. And that, that's pretty cool to do that. And it was the same thing with, I think when he was with Drew Pearson, they were friendly with Joe McCarthy, uh-huh. sharing their files with him. And then they just decided that McCarthy was wrong and just went after him. And McCarthy never quite understood why his friends would do this to him. But their point was, it's not about friendship. This is about doing what's right. Right. You know, I, people forget, too, uh, I think a lot of our listeners here at the university, you know, certainly Watergate is in the history books for them, but, you know, during that whole brouhaha, it came out that G. Gordon Liddy at one point was uh, seriously putting forward a plan to go forward and, and, and murder Jack Anderson. Yeah, they had the wonderful, they were going to either poison him or out him as gay, I think, was one of their plans, and they didn't really get off the ground. I think, though, they sent some people to follow him around, and he stayed to the thing where his kids ambush them and jack jack anderson had nine kids oh my um, and they were i think it was either i think they were either fbi or cia agents who were assigned to tail him <laughs> your, your tax dollars at work yeah and what he did was he got his kids together and his kids were running after them with cameras taking their pictures which is hilarious i mean it, that's a and it's also a very brave thing to do because your instinct is usually to protect your family when that's happening but instead he just brought it out into the light and got the last laugh my god I understand the plan was they were going to slip him LSD and stage or stage a fatal car crash, but I think they decided the LSD was too unreliable. So, I think G. Gordon Liddy was too unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would love to have seen that. The idea of, of G. Gordon Liddy giving someone LSD and staging a fatal car crash—the way that would have backfired—would have been amazing. Would have made a bigger, bigger story for for Bob Woodward. Yes. Well, Jane, we thank you very much for talking with us. Any any other pearls of wisdom you want to want to throw out about Anderson? One thing that was really important to Jack Anderson were the constitutional rights of his columns and his work. And you know, he felt he was very much, you know, the free speech guy out there, which is interesting, just in light of the incidents we've had with reporters going to jail. I think he saw it a little differently as as they would now, um, and I think his responsibilities were a little bit purer in terms of, you know, what the Constitution actually means for Americans rather than um, how you can use the Constitution to um, manipulate your situation. Jane Rusconi, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us. I hope that it'll be, it will be less than two years before you come back. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot. You know, this is our third segment, uh, and we like to put in all the obituaries in there. Lou Rawls passed away last week. Uh, Dr. Andy, on yesterday's program, uh, 
started playing a, a Lou Rawls tune, and uh, I got sucked into it. And apparently so did Dr. Andy, who, who planned to only air an excerpt from it, but was so taken by the music, he let it run till the end. Great performer, and uh, I'm sorry we don't have time to, uh, to talk a little bit more about him, but I think we'll let uh, Dr. Andy's work yesterday just stand on its own merit. Joining us now from Pasadena, California, and the offices of the Planetary Society is Dr. Amir Alexander. Thank you very much. Now, um, something very interesting is going to happen on Saturday night. We, we alluded to it a little bit earlier in the program. Can you talk a bit about uh, this, this mission to space and what it, may, what it may provide for us in the way of a show in the sky? Absolutely. Um, Stardust. The spacecraft Stardust is returning, is returning to Earth on the night of uh, January 15th. Uh, from a voyage of seven, seven years in space and about three billion miles. Uh, it's a very long, yeah, very long time and very long voyage in space. And uh, it, during this time, it had passed, uh, it, its mission was to pass through the coma, that is uh, through the uh, um, aura of dust and gas that surrounds a comet, this time comet uh, called Wild 2. Mm-hmm. And during the passage, it collected particles that had been on the comet, on the surface of the comet, just just hours before. So basically, it's bringing it's bringing back to Earth uh, fresh and uh, fresh samples and un, uncontaminated samples from the com from the comet itself. And it is going to, on January fifteenth is going to, to swing by Earth, and when it comes very close, it is going to release uh, a sample return capsule that is going to uh, streak above the skies and eventually land in the desert uh, in Utah. Now we should point out to our listeners that apparently uh, we here in Northern California are in the zone that can see this thing. It's supposedly going to get as bright as Venus for 90 seconds and will look like one heck of a shooting star as it passes uh, uh, in the north from where we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, you just have to look up at the right time and you'll see quite a show. Now I'm looking to try to gauge what that right time is, and it looks to, looks for us up here. It's going to be somewhere's around 1:57. It'll be entering the Earth's atmosphere, so you better get out there about at least five minutes before you want to see this thing. Yeah, I hear the best place. Yeah, the best place to watch the really lucky people are out there in northern Nevada, where it's going to where it's going to come closest, and will be will be the brightest. Now you have to when you see it, you should know that this is the fastest object ever, man-made object ever to enter the Earth's atmosphere faster than any Apollo mission or any other mission ever, ever to return to Earth. So this is uh, not just a nice show, but really a historic show. It's going to be burning rubber. I mean, uh, the calculation here, 28,800 miles an hour, that's 13 kilometers a second. Now, a rifle is only, a rifle bullet's about like one kilometer a second. So this is like 13 times as fast as a rifle bullet. Yeah, even out in space when it encountered, during its encounter with, with the comet, uh, and that was in January of 2004, it was relative to the comet. It was traveling at six times the speed of uh, the speed of the bullet. Wow! So uh, yeah, it's it's coming fast. Now, basically, my understanding is you lifted up basically like a uh, kind of a tennis racket that had aerogel in it that trapped these little particles. I think maybe there's only going to be about 45 or 50 of these little bits of comet dust. Not exactly. There are two. Um, you're right about the about the collector, the aerogel. The aerogel collector is it is indeed uh, tennis racket shaped. And aerogel is this ultralight material. It is based the lightest material ever uh, that has made by uh, by by that's made made by humans. And its purpose is it can it, its characteristic is that it can capture 
um, capture particles traveling at amazing speeds, and it can capture them in a very short period, stop them without destroying them. So that, that is a very remarkable, uh, remarkable characteristic, and that is why it is used to capture, uh, to capture these particles. Now, during, actually, on January 2nd, 2004, when it passed by the comet, only uh, 230 miles from the comet, it actually sustained a very, very heavy bombardment. It was, it was hit by, uh, by, by, by thousands or thousands of, thousands of particles, some of them as, as large as a pebble. So it was, uh, and it was really the harshest, really the harshest environment that any spacecraft has ever endured. And it had special, it had special uh, shields. Uh, that were that were designed to protect it, and indeed they did. But it was, it turns out, it was quite a close call because uh, the, those pebble-sized particles actually penetrated several levels of the shield. But there's no doubt that there are there are a lot of particles of different sizes from the comet that that were captured, and all of these are coming are coming back to Earth. Now the other type of particle that was captured was captured not at the comet, but actually during the voyage towards the comet. Uh, during certain areas, certain areas in the solar system have a stream of interstellar dust that blows in from the from beyond the solar system. That is, and those are particles that originate in faraway stars, suns like our own, but light years and light years away. And they're coming and they're blowing in towards the solar system. Now, those particles are very very small, just a few microns in size. And uh, they're also very, very, I mean, they're also, it's not like, uh, it's nothing like the bombardment that, that, that spacecraft sustained near the comet. It's just, uh, it's just a very, very light, uh, sort of a light breeze, I could, could say. I knew nothing about that. That's really very surprising. Yes. And it captured, and what it did with this aerogel, uh, with the aerogel is on one side of it was exposed during the comet, during the comet encounter. That's one side. During the uh, but during the during uh, during the voyage during the journey it exposed the opposite side, and those are very rare particles and they're probably and they're calculating that they're probably going to be about only about 40 or 45 particles altogether that were captured uh, that were captured during this uh, during this journey through the uh, through the interstellar dust stream. Well, if all goes well, it'll land in Utah. Hopefully, uh, I believe the switches were installed correctly on this spacecraft, so it will deploy its parachute. We hope, and hope maybe you can you can come back in a couple of weeks and talk about what uh, what what we're finding. Yes, uh, I think your your uh, uh, yeah your your listeners might be interested in a, in a project that is related to Stardust and is very interesting. It's called Stardust at Home, and that it will enable. Users like your listeners, like uh, like users from the general public, to actually participate in looking through the aerogel and finding those 40 to 45 interstellar dust particles. This can be done by uh, simply by signing up by signing up on the web. Okay, where would they go to do that? The, there's a website. Uh, they can go come to the Planetary Society. We are the Planetary Society is an official as uh, an official uh, okay. collaborator in the project. All right. And we will have uh, we will have uh, links links from there. And that is uh, www.planetary.org. Uh, if they want to go directly, they can go to uh, um, www.stardust.ssl.berkeley.edu. Fair enough. Well, Dr. Alexander, we appreciate very much for speaking with us, and uh, we hope that you'll uh, maybe come back in two or three weeks, and we'll kind of do a postmortem. Yes, I look forward to it, and I hope there's. <laughs> I hope it is not exactly exactly uh, aborted. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. That was Dr. Emir Alexander. He works for the Planetary Society, and we should note that Planetary Radio uh, can be heard on KUCI, which is on the web. That's our sister station, UC Irvine, down in Orange County. 
the program is webcast via KUCI.org. And we're hoping that perhaps if there's a, a slot here available at KDVS, we may be able to get Planetary Radio here as well. The Planetary Society does some very interesting stuff, and we'd, uh, we'd like to, you know, k- keep you apprised of, of what they're doing. All right, we are very much out of time. I want to thank our good pal Jane Rusconi talking to us from Los Angeles, Dr. Amir Alexander as well, both of whom we hope will appear on this program uh, again. I'm quite tickled that we were able to borrow from Fox 5 in Atlanta, W-A-G-A, George Franco acting as our assistant. Uh, uh, George just certainly belted out that question to John Edwards about the war, and it looks like Peter Hecht wound up using it for his headline. In the B article the next day, reduce troops in Iraq, Edward says. So, you know, in our, in our own small way, Radio Parallax was helping the Sacramento Bee. We're glad to do it. We suggest, dear listener, that you now stay tuned for Todd to follow with Hometown Atrocities. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock, at which time we're going to address the question of did Jesus exist? And there's a court battle going on in Italy over that question. We're going to talk to some people about it, and we're going to address a hero of me lie. Hugh Thompson, chopper pilot who passed away last week, and talk with our general manager, Steve Valentino, a little bit about what happened at My Lai, one of the blackest moments, surely, in what was the tragedy of the Vietnam War. We'll see you next Thursday.